All right. So we are on my dock. <laughs> I'm calling it mine, um, but our family's dock. And so this is in the backyard of our house. And I chose this place just because, to be very honest, I will let you guys know. I grew up in Brooklyn and then Queens. I'm a very city girl, okay? And this, when we went, came to see the house, this place was like, oh my God, <laughs> what am I? Wow, wait, why do I feel? Because I've always been someone who is not as connected to nature, a little bit like, ugh. And the water just calming. And I really um, love being out here alone because it just like allows for me to get some clarity. I'm someone who has a lot of thoughts, a lot of ideas. And sometimes this is a place to just like sit and open up. Welcome to Wild Talk. Welcome to Wild Talk. Welcome to Wild Talk. Let's head outside. As the country continues to grapple with the impact of racism in our communities, we wanted to understand how an institution like healthcare, which prides itself on scientific objectivity, was coming to terms with the impact racism has on doctors and patients alike. We reached out to Dr. Omolara Uemedimo a leading voice in advocating for black women physicians to talk about her experiences as a doctor, as a patient, and as a community builder seeking to heal with more than just medicine. We joined Dr. Uemadimo on a canal behind her home in Long Island, New York. It was one of the first warm days of spring, and it seemed like everyone in the neighborhood, from people with lawnmowers to ducks, geese, and laughing gulls, were out and about enjoying the waterfront. I was a child who was very, um, lots of nasal issues, sinus issues. So I was at the doctor a lot. Um, and I just remember, I can't even remember her face as well as I just remember the relationship, my pediatrician, who I would see often. And I just loved going there. I just loved, she was always so inviting and happy. And I was just like, wow, you know, <laughs> like it was, a lot of times as children, you see adults and you don't see a lot of adults who are extremely joyful and just like love their experience. And I love that. And I was like, wow, what makes her that way? And I didn't, I, you know, we, I didn't know, but I figured, I put two and two and said, is it the pediatrics? Is it that she gets to play with kids all day? And so very young, I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician. And then when I finally got to medical school, um, I, I couldn't connect with anything else other than pediatrics. <laughs> um, actually, to be really, really honest, the the thing that really sealed the deal was um, an elective that we did in peripheral vascular um, surgery, and we had to deal with feet every day, all day. And I was like, if I have to see an adult foot, <laughs> it's out. And so that, that sealed the deal that I would not see adults at all. Because of adults. <laughs> because of adults. <laughs> that's, that's legit. It sealed the deal. Like, there were other things, but, like, I remember that. I was like, oh, God, no, no, this is horrible. But I loved, I literally loved kids. I really loved um, how you don't have to be serious. Like, you can just be free and... And, they, they, and that's what they, they connect with. 
and I'm curious, you know, when you're a pediatrician, you not only have this relationship with this kid, but you've also got the parent, you've got the family in the mix. Um, tell me about some of that relationship where yeah. you've got the really sort of two people you're caring for yeah. as a clinician. I, you know, I think the thing about this is it's funny because um, when I went in, I forgot about the adults, right? I was like, oh yeah, these, these little, fun beings are actually connected to these humans and so it was in medical school when I started to get at that and it and it you know it really was kind of um, difficult in the beginning just because you see parents as someone who wasn't a parent you see them and they're they are basically giving the thing that's most precious and to them and trusting you with that in pediatrics and there's a lot of emotion around that, which can be negative or positive emotion. And initially, before I became a parent, I couldn't understand kind of, why don't you trust me? Let's just do this. Let's get this together. And I used to get, um, you know, upset. And, and just when, when there was a lot of pushback around things that I thought would be helpful. And after becoming a parent and really um, being able to now not have to sit in the space of, well, I'm the doctor and I learned these things, and really coming to a space of, oh my God, parenthood is crazy, and <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing, and that vulnerability, that lack of knowing everything, it allowed for me to get into a space where I could really connect with parents in such a better way, and now, you know, it's funny because I, I stopped clinically practicing at the end of um, at the beginning of 2020 um, as we started to uh, work on my, my businesses and a lot of the parents when I left the practice were kind of like we're following you wherever you're going we're following you and there's this connection I feel I told my friend I said people are really territorial about their pediatricians like very connected and now the parents are the most important thing so now that I transitioned into melanin medicine motherhood I did that because of the connection and the bond with women and they became my favorite part the relationship the talking the connecting and the intimacy where a lot of times they're telling you things that they're either ashamed or feel bad that they can't tell other people that I don't know this or I can't do this and um, that's been my now that's my favorite part of, of pediatrics mm. so that connection to that other woman that mother who's there that parent and and sort of the dynamic that and the space it opens up by virtue of just saying the door shut it's okay tell me what's going on yeah. oh that's beautiful I I know when we first met, um, you and I were at South by Southwest, yes. and I, I heard you um, give a talk about some work you were doing about supporting some of your families um, uh, who were immigrant families and um, needing to find a new way to support them by bringing in things that you don't really traditionally think about in medicine. In particular, you were talking about um, connecting with legal services. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that um, and also sort of what brought you to this place where you were looking for these sort of non-traditional pairings to complement the way um, you know you were able to to show up for your patients yeah that's a you know that's rooted a lot in my background in global health right so when I 
you know, I'm daughter of Nigerian immigrants. And so I was able during my childhood to go to Nigeria quite often and was really confronted with a lot of the equity issues. Didn't know what that word was at the time, but confronted with the fact that people who look like me, who are part of my family, had completely different lives and, um, and was angry about it. And so I actually spent a lot of my time <laughs> from like when I was 19, I remember like telling my mom, I'm going to Kenya. I have this one big backpack. We're gonna go for three months with this group. And she's just looking at me like, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> and, and I didn't know what I was doing, but when I, but I knew that I, I knew that there was a lot that I wanted to impact. And the most extreme of it was what I had seen was in Sub-Saharan Africa. And so I wanted to be connected with that. And when I, I finally had kids and that became medical school and residency and then after residency living out broad, and when I finally came back to learn more about how to create programs better, um, a lot of what I had learned there was kind of, there wasn't a disconnect between health and what people live daily, right? That, those, those 20 minutes that they spend with us are, are, are so minimal and, so, and such a small piece of what's probably contributing to their health, right? And so, you got to see that and you and it was always evident in the encounter that you couldn't separate it so i couldn't separate that when a child came into my office and had no shoes like i couldn't say okay we're gonna we're gonna focus on your medicine and not talk about this elephant in the room of what's happening why is this you know i couldn't talk about the fact that why is your grandmother here and not your mother and father who because they've died of hiv and so and, and what that means for your family. And so when I came back here um, to work and practice, that, that, um, that uh, border, that wall between healthcare and the other stuff that maybe we'll send to the social worker was really, it always caused a tension for me. And I was like, why can't we, <laughs> like, why do I need to send that out why can't we figure out ways, if, if the parent knows me and trusts me so much, how come we can't figure out ways to address this within here? And so that was when I started thinking about, like, what are the ways we can bring those things inside? And what are the, and the people who connected most were immigrants because I, I in some sense, knew what they had left. Mm. And, and I knew, and for my parents, I knew that. And then coming here, and not having the support, sometimes not knowing the language, and feeling so far removed from the people who are supposed to be your support system, that there was like this kinship around immigrant families, and I, um, I knew so how much they needed, and I was just, I felt not at ease, and so I think that was the the reason why it was like okay, I would see these children, and they're perfectly fine from a health standpoint but homeless or, but, you know, unemployed parent um, living with like three other families in one house, you know, and that, and that, <laughs> uh, and then so it was about thinking about ways that we could integrate that. And that first started with like, just trying to find places that we could refer. And then it next became actual programs where we could 
put people into those places and be able to communicate and actually provide services in, in a meaningful way. And, you know, it, it just keeps catapulting. And that's how lawyers finally came into it, because we realized a lot of the things we referred for weren't happening, even with a letter from the doctor. And, it, and we realized having lawyers on board was really helpful for families, for those things that really a social worker just couldn't, couldn't fix. Wow. And, and from that, those connections, I mean, it sounds like obviously it makes a big social difference. Did it also make a clinical difference? Yeah, yeah, that was the fun part. So, like, just trying to look at that. Um, one of the things that, you know, we have found when we were looking at um, a few things that, you know, like well child visits, I think was one of the papers that we have been working on. And far and away, social support and um, housing were really important pieces for whether a parent would come in, whether a parent would um, be able to, you know, have continuity of care. Um, we found some really interesting connections um, that, you know, have been already published around food insecurity and, you know, obesity, right? And the fact that I can't tell you to eat <laughs> these things if, all you have money for is, you know, the cheapest things, which are usually the things that will make you obese. And so, um, yeah, and I think the issue for us a lot of times as physicians is if even if it seems a lot of us are really scared to go there, we're like, what am I what can I do that seems so large? And it's about thinking about even the acknowledgement of what is the one thing that you could do? What's the most courageous thing that you could do in that visit, right, um, for that family? And yeah, and so that's been interesting to see how creating programs like this not only caused more trust in the encounter, right, where now parents were like, wait, you do this? You, you're going to help me with the immigration issue? The trust and the bond that that has for the parent to be like, well, actually, he's also having this, and this is also happening. And so there's a, this person values me, this person listens to me, and so that has been really helpful. If people don't know about Boston Medical Center, it is like one of the holy grails of innovation. Like, Everything that you can imagine, whether it be Reach Out and Read, which was a reading program that they instituted, whether it be um, Project Health, which turned into Health Leads, um, which was a program where they brought in navigators and they wrote prescriptions for housing, for mm -hmm. food, um, whether it be tax preparation in the waiting room. Like, that is the place that inspired me when I got there and I saw all these physicians and I was like, Wait, you just don't see patients? Like you're working at the homeless shelter? Wait, you're doing, you're working in Congress? You're doing, and it was just like, oh, I didn't know physicians, like we had that breath that we could do these things. And so that really was an inspiration to say, I've seen it done here. Let's look at this new site that I have and let's think about how it needs to be really formatted and adapted for the families that we see. And, uh, and the reason why immigrants were so, um, such a focus was that my practice was in Queens 
and, and every door you opened was new language, new person, like new background. And we needed to create a program that had that kind of diversity. So when we thought about, okay, we don't have money, right? We don't have all of the things, what do we do? Well, we have students, we have a university, we have all of those things. We have a lot of them who are also low income and also come from the same backgrounds and speak the same languages. And so let's start to, let's start to connect. And that was how we started. We started with students and that allowed for us to take a model that was unfunded, start it, and then get funding. And that's, I think, little by little, I think it's now becoming kind of, everyone's realizing this is actually not just a nice thing to do, this is the thing that you have to yeah, do. Yeah, you have to do it. I, I wanted to pick up real quick on something you mentioned earlier, which was that it requires a little bit of bravery on the physician's <laughs> part to start this. Why bravery? Why, what, what, what does it take about being brave in that moment to pick, talk about these subjects? Yeah. Um, in medicine, you know, the medicine has a certain, um, a certain connection to apprenticeship, right? Where you're learning from the people who have gone before you. And that can be both good and bad, right? Because if everyone's done things a certain way, you're very likely to do it that way as well. And there's a, a certain amount of bravery, especially in medicine, which is very scientific and evidence-based to say, you know what, we're going to try this experiment and we're going to do it a little bit differently. And the, the concern, of course, has always been people's lives, right? It's, it's not, <laughs> it doesn't go without consequence if the thing that you do um, is not helpful and actually harmful. And so there's a certain level of bravery to think differently. There's a lot of groupthink in medicine. And definitely for those of us who don't look like how medicine traditionally looked like, there's a lot of just bravery in one being in medicine. And then two, trying not to rock the boat. You're, you know, you're just trying to make sure you finish and, and, and complete. But there's also kind of a bravery of recognizing when you have a shared experience with the people you care for and you know that what you're doing is not sufficient. And a bravery of like saying, going back to do no harm, going back to you know beneficence and saying, if this isn't sufficient, what is it that I need to do differently? And how do I do it and bring others with me? And a lot of times, often we just need a few people to, to be that brave with us. So you've had a really impressive and brave career um, as a physician, a researcher, a leader in global health, a professor. Um, but in another interview, you had mentioned, you know, you reached a point of pretty serious burnout. Um, and I, you know, know that burnout has sort of reached epidemic proportions among our, our practitioners in this country. Um, what are the factors that, that pushed you to the breaking point? Yeah. Um, I talk about something called the value myth. So especially with the black woman physicians I get to work with. And it's this idea that, um, you know, a lot of times black kids, kids who are marginalized, 
are, when they have these dreams of what they want to do, a lot of times they're told, that's good, but remember, it's going to be hard. It's going to be this. You're going to have to, you know, work twice as hard. You're going to have to, and it probably won't be valued the same. And so you grow up connecting your value, which should be inherent, right, just as a human being on Earth, connecting it to your work and, and anything that doesn't, anything that doesn't, um, that stands as a roadblock. Initially, your first reaction is, maybe I didn't work hard enough and let me work a little harder. Let me do it this way. Maybe I need to add this on, get this degree, <laughs> do this too. Um, and so we find, even if you think about it, we find black women as, as one of the most educated demographics in the U.S. And, the mo and one of the most underpaid, right? And the idea is because we've almost been indoctrinated to this um, place of overworking, overproducing, mm. and undervaluing. Mm. And I would say that I was a definite victim to that. I'm also the daughter of Nigerian immigrants, so any Nigerian people who, who hear this know that that's also <laughs> a lot of pressure there. A lot of pressure. Okay. <laughs> um, but I think ultimately what happened was this idea of producing, producing. I'm going to be the, the best educator. I'm going to be the best clinician. I'm going to be the best researcher. And I don't want to give anyone an, a, an inch to say that I'm not doing my job to the fullest degree. And that looked like staying until midnight after seeing patients in the, in the office to finish those notes and make sure no one tomorrow could say, how come that note wasn't done? And all of these obsessive <laughs> things that I look back now and I'm just like, wow, like how many nights did I miss? And so ultimately in 2018, um, I got to a breaking point. I actually had had so, many, so much research going on that I actually was able to um, buy out most of my salary right and so protect most of my time but i was just still seeing patients because like one afternoon a week because my patients would have rioted in the streets if if i wasn't there i was the only spanish-speaking doctor i was the only um black doctor and it was just very like they were very connected to that and so um i got to a point where i was doing i was teaching at the at the um, mph school i was um, doing multiple research projects, I was seeing these patients, and none of my practice, would, none of my patients would no show because they had waited months to see me. And so I think um, I got to a point where I was no longer. I usually could fake it, quote unquote, like fake the, yeah, hey, you know, I'm doing well, and it, and then I got to a point where I couldn't, and I knew that I had to, I had to step away. So I, I, um, I had that discussion, which was really hard, and writing the letter was really hard to tell patients that I'm not going to be practicing, mm. and because that's what had defined me for so long. It's like, who am I if I'm not that? And, um, and I filled up that time. So instead of taking the time off, I filled it up, did more advocacy, and six months later, I, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Oh, was, wow. And I was like, how did this happen? Oh. Uh, yeah. And so I, I did realize that even though I had taken that time out, I still was filling it up. I still had the same habits that were telling me, you can't have this time off. You have to do something with it. Wow. <laughs>
So really not even giving your body the chance to sort of rest and catch itself. Wow. You mentioned the, that it was important to um, your patients that you be there not only because you, you could speak Spanish, but also because, because you're a black doctor. Mm -hmm. um, can you say a little bit more about why it's important, especially for communities of colors, to have black doctors? Yeah. Ah, so, you know, often we're, we call, like, a lot of us call ourselves the 2%. So, like, black women are 2% of all physicians in the U.S. And, um, and it stayed like that for a very, very long time. And Lisa Cooper did a, a really interesting study um, from Hopkins. She actually did a study where she observed and looked at the interactions and the health encounters um, of disconcordant patient provider race, so meaning patient is black, provider is white. Um, what she found was that those patients were less, had a, 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 a negative affect a lot of times or a, 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 a lack of affect, which meant that their faces were more kind of glossed over, not as dynamic or happy. Um, they talked less in those visits. Um, and in review of the, of the physicians and interviews with many of the physicians, they talked about how their patients seemed to be less motivated and um, less interested in their care. And so what we know is that there's a disconnect in even in the U.S. where 75% of white people don't have black friends, don't have people who are that friends, not people who they who work for them or people, but friends. And that separation takes away the ability to truly like um, share in the experiences to really start to understand people and also start to understand the challenges that they that they face. And so I think when what we're seeing is we we're seeing that black doctors tend to be a safe space in healthcare which a lot of times has not been a safe space with the origins of, starting with the origins of slavery up to now. And many of the things I've learned, right, were very, were um, very racist, like the things around um, lung volumes and thinking that black people had smaller lung volumes and actually having devices that had a race correction, um, which, we, which we know is not, that is not um, connected at all to race. Um, there's been studies recently where black kids receive less pain medicine than white children. And, if you, and also studies where they ask med students about pain and there's a thought black skin is thicker than white skin and, and among med students. And so it becomes, it, be, it cuts to a point where we, it's just so vital to have us, not only to care, but also to be in those rooms to really advocate and say, this is wrong how you're doing this, and this is how it needs to be done. But it also leads to burnout, right? Because I'm in a, I'm in a let's say I'm in a hospital, I'm taking care of my patients, but I always have my eye on the other black patients who I'm not taking care of, mm. and just checking and seeing how are they doing? And it, and it does become emotionally taxing to, um, to always have to kind of look and make sure and add and, you know, reach out, you know? So. It's twice the work on you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
After the death of Susan Moore, Dr. Susan Moore, a black physician in Indianapolis whose pleas for help with her worsening COVID condition um, went unheeded, you tweeted, one can't help but wonder whether the outcome would have been different if she did not undergo repeated delays in care that were undoubtedly due to her being a black woman and the lack of respect and trust that we often face. These are the issues we face as we give up so much to take care of our patients, even in harm's way, and when we find ourselves as patients, we are disrespected, devalued, and dismissed. It cost Dr. Moore her life. Her medical degree did not save her from the racism that she endured while battling for her life. Um, in saying her degree did not save her, you know, there's a heartbreak for a world in which it could have or should have been different. Um, and I'd just love to hear a little, little more about that. Yeah. As someone who um, not too long ago was recently hospitalized, I, you know, I have never had COVID. Um, I've seen, you know, what that, what that illness does. And it's absolutely, it's absolutely tragic. And I know in my illness, one of the things that I, you think about is that you need all of that energy, all of your physical presence to fight that illness. And for her have, having to divide that energy that needs to be there to fight the, the, the build of her immune system, to get to, the, you know, to get to that place of recovery and to have to divide that to fighting for her to be treated and to be seen. I, I just think about the, the, the stress, the increase in what we call cortisol, the, how her immune system now had to, you know, focus, instead of focusing on the disease, had to be focused on this as well. And I just, I just worry um, this issue of not, you know, not being believed and, and there being delays in care and you know, ultimately, if we have questions, being thought of as hostile instead of inquisitive and curious. And it, it, I, 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 my heart bleeds for her because I think every black woman physician who saw that had no, it, it triggered because it was like, that could totally be me. And when I saw her, I was like, that was me, right? Because you, I remember like having this infiltrated IV and asking someone take this out. This is really painful. We'll be right there. We'll be right there. And and just and then taking it out myself and trying to like hold and and just and I just I you need people to fight for you and we and I often talk about like why didn't she have a group of us as black women physicians like with her or you know that we could have like rallied and i know i had that and that was so needed i had friends who came in and <laughs> were grilling doctors and were like what's this and how to do this and so i i do believe that that day when i saw that couldn't think of anything else and I literally as soon as I saw it after I just wrote whatever I wrote in that tweet because it needed to get out because I couldn't function and a lot of times we're expected to work after we see things like that um, literally this you know yesterday um, seeing seeing the video of 
the representative in Georgia and seeing her arrested for literally just being visible, taking up space and demanding access. And I think that is the threat that we have in the many places that we work. The threat that if you're too visible, if you demand too much, you will be removed, you will be restricted, and you will be retaliated against. And it hurts my heart, and it just, every time we see it, and it just is like trauma, 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 trauma. And, and a lot of times we don't have places to go. The, doc, the healer doesn't have places to heal. So you have created with um, its melanin, medicine, and motherhood, you created a space for support and healing. Maybe you could tell us more about that. Yeah, that's my baby. I have two babies, but that's the third one. <laughs> <laughs> melanin, medicine, and motherhood um, was after my diagnosis, and I did not. If you could tell me, like, when I first started medicine that I would create something like this, I would be laughing like my heart out. And um, Melanin Medicine Motherhood is this space that I created while on medical leave. Um, I was relearning how to walk. It took me about three and a half months um, after my diagnosis. And I was like, like I said, you know, I had defined myself by work. And I remember I was in the hospital bed and my brother called me and he was like, Omalai, what brings you joy? And I was like, I sat on that question for like two weeks. He's like, because he said, you can't bring up other people, can't talk about how, how much it's joyful to, sh to help other. He said, what brings you joy? Mm. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and so when I thought about it, I thought about the things that were most meaningful to me. And I remembered that there was this theme about really like being being that space for, for black women, whether they be mothers in the office or whether they be colleagues who are junior faculty or, you know, who are kind of, I don't know why, always calling me and asking me, hey, what do you think I should do for this? And, um, and realizing that, oh, maybe that's a gift of mine. And, and I, I knew that there wasn't community because I felt isolated and I knew that maybe there needs to be a community. So initially I thought it was for black working moms, but when I was creating a Facebook group for those moms, the ones who never spoke were the physicians. Hmm. And, it's, and I knew it was because it's not safe. We a lot of times are told, you know, we a lot of times have to be the person with the answers, not the person with the questions. Hmm. And so until there was a space, and that's when I decided to shift. So in January 2020, I shifted completely and I said, I'm creating a space just for black physicians and women physicians. And like, you know, people were like, okay, this, is, this should be interesting. And um, I started with just a few physicians that I was like, hey, do you want to like connect and talk about like balance and, and figuring out kind of what you want to do with your life and stuff? And um, I tried to, to like create a curriculum around it and it became a course. And then, you know, podcasts and all of these things and resources and blogs. And so it just started to just grow. And now we have, I think about 45 women in the, in the actual like 
coursework and communi paid community, and we have about 1,350 in our Facebook group. Wow. Um, and it really is a space where women can just share, but they feel like they can be vulnerable and not have to have all of the answers. And those freedom spaces are far and few in between. I often say I don't really want safe spaces or brave spaces. I just want to be free. Hmm. There's such an interesting intersection of that persona of doctor, right? <laughs> who needs to be the brave face? Who needs to have the answers? Who, who probably was the, one of the smartest people in her class <laughs> for years and years and years. And as you mentioned before, had to, you know, work twice as hard at everything to get there, to then take a moment and be like, well, wait a minute. What about, what is my joy? Mm -hmm. What do I need? Where do I turn to? It's not a skill you practice in terms of not having answers or, or, or being vulnerable. And I'm, I'm curious for you, what have been some of the most surprising insights um, that have come from that community for yourself? I think how, how well we hide. And what I mean by that is like when you, when I, when we finally engage with some of the women and we're getting behind everything, behind the degrees, the diplomas, the accomplishments and, and how like either scared or even just like devaluing their accomplishments or or that lack of like feeling like I can do it, right? Like turning down your shine? Yeah. Those things are just like you sit there and I, I've heard from the women that the most powerful piece has been sitting there and realizing I'm looking at these women who are amazing, right? And they're like, they have the same issues and struggles <laughs> that I have. And I think all of them just feel validated. Like they're like, oh, okay. It's not there's something wrong with me. This is a common shared experience that a lot of times is bred from medicine, bred from the society, bred from, you know, patriarchy, bred from white supremacy. And a lot of times we personalized it and thought it was an incompetence of us or a problem with us that we had to fix. And there are issues that we have to fix, which have to do with our confidence and like owning our power. But then there are things where we've spent so much time trying to fix us that we haven't had the time to demand that the institutions and environments fix themselves too. And so now I see women who are like deciding to open new businesses and start podcasts. And I've seen women who have gotten off blood pressure medicine. <laughs> it's crazy. I'm like, clinical impact not, once and, again. And, yeah, <laughs> I was like, is this, is this what this is supposed to do? But <sighs> lost weight, all of these things. Oh, man. And it's like, oh my gosh. And honestly, I am a facilitator. Um, I'm a convener. But the power is the community. And, and we need community. You know, in thinking about community, um, there's this beautiful sisterhood for, that you've created. Um, 
and the things that you're working to dismantle, uh, you know, so many of us want to, to help break down these structures, break down, uh, dismantle white supremacy, um, and, and, and dismantle these trappings of patriarchy that sort of double down on it all the time. And uh, I heard you in another interview make a point that I, that I often think about is that, um, especially as a, as a white woman wanting to, to, to help do this work, I need to not show up as an ally, but as an accomplice. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about accompliship. Yeah. So I wish I wish I could say that those words came from me, but they didn't. But I loved it as soon as I heard accomplice because a lot of times allyship is the the epitome of it is really I'm there for you. I see what you're dealing with, but it holds no. There's no risk for to be an ally. Um, a lot of times, Brittany Cooper talks about whispered allyship, one of, my, one of my favorites, where you put yourself out there and later you get an email or a pat on the back after the incident about how awesome that was. Um, that's not helpful. Not. So <laughs> accomplice really is the idea of what it is that, what is it that you have to lose by doing this, by saying this? What are you risking? because the person who's going through it is risking everything, right? They're in this space. And you get to have a choice of what it is. Do I keep my privilege or do I put it on the line? And accomplices really are the people who are going to be in the middle of the meeting and say, that was absolutely outrageous. You, you don't need to be saying that. And, and saying it to people who they know <laughs> possibly could either um, jeopardize what their future is, but saying it because it's the right thing to do. And so when you think about an act and when you think about how I'm helping, what is it that you are, are putting out there? What are you putting out on the line? When I think about accomplices, I think about people who are willing to listen, willing to put themselves on the line. And, and, and we need you, you know? I, one of the things I've said is that a lot of times when we complain about things, they go in the black people complaint bucket, never to be seen again. <laughs> and, but when you'll say it and you're in that circle with us, they now move over. <laughs> and we're happy about that. We're excited about that, you know? And, and I think more, more, more people who are doing that and saying, I'm going to use that privilege that I have in real time, whether or not it costs me fill in the blank. That's an accomplice. It's not just you reading the book. Now it's like, what needs to change? Um, Kamara Jones, who is a like goddess in my eyes, the, the for, one of the former presidents of the American Public Health Association talks about racism like in the airport that moving walkway right the one I always take because I never want to walk so, so that moving walkway in the airport and how you can just stand there and do nothing right and just be a good person and racism is just moving along and you're there and it's not until like you actively turn around and look ridiculous right to all the people who are walk or are standing there and are walking the exact opposite way. That, that's what anti-racism looks like. 
and, and it takes effort, right? You're walking, you're trying to get to the other side and it's going to be hard. It's going to, you, you know, because racism just moving. It's like, come on, you don't have to do anything. Just stay still. And so I think of, it's going to be active. Yeah. It's, it has to be active. You have to yeah. think about, this is not going to be easy work for, for you. Yeah. And, and I think a lot about of not just risk, which I think is an interesting idea, but, but um, uh, what can you do to um, push against the comfort that white supremacy promises you, right? It's more comfortable to stay quiet or to whisper it behind the scenes. It's more comfortable. And you know, the, the, the privilege doesn't redistribute itself, right? It takes active effort to, to move that on behalf of others. Correct, and I and I want to say this because one of the things I had a um, I had a, a master class yesterday for the women, and it was, it was called strategies to navigate racism as a black woman in medicine, and one of the ending slides that we talked about was what about you when you commit a microaggression, mm. right? Because <laughs> don't think that we got a whole bunch of privilege. I have a whole bunch of privilege as a black woman who gets to live in a place that she can own and has certain degrees and a certain income. And it's the same thing, like you said, how do I get uncomfortable for people who don't, who don't have that? For people who, I have an invisible disability, but I don't have a visible disability. I, I you know, I, I am part of the norm in terms of the, in terms of like the majority, in terms of my sexual orientation and, and all of those kind of spaces where am I in the in-group or the quote unquote out group and how do I make sure that I'm making space for people to come in because it's not it's not necessarily inclusion I like to say that we we want like I don't really like diversity equity inclusion because that lever then doesn't stand on me it stands on the people who have excluded us like to finally say okay you can't come in and the thing is I've never asked to belong never asked to melt into your melting pot, what we want is access. The levers of change, we want access to that. What, what um, Representative Park Cannon wanted was access. It seems like you've brought together in a powerful way sort of individual and community medicine, both in your public health work, um, in your creating community spaces, you know, healing spaces. Um, there's also a powerful archetype of the wounded healer. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like you embody that and it brings power to your leadership um, and, and, and your medicine when you share your journey with MS. And it's almost revolutionary to the perfect, all-knowing, infallible doctor <laughs> that you know, inhabits our, our imaginations. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's not me. Um, <laughs> um, what I found really early before my diagnosis was like I said, a young mom not knowing kind of what I was doing, but having to be the person to tell mothers, actually, you should do it this way. And when I finally was like, I don't know how to do that either. Let's, 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 let's sit and talk through this. What makes sense? Let's try this. What do you think? Um, when, that, when that vulnerability showed up, you know, in medicine, a lot of times we're taught to put that wall there, right? And that's professional. 
Uh, I haven't found that to be the case in the medicine I practice. Um, I've found that the most, the most like beautiful relationships I've had are with moms who saw and know my kids' names and, and also know what I share with them. And being able to share the fallibility, right, of, um, of ourselves, I think brings our humanity to a place where people feel more trust and feel like, okay, she's human and she has some information that could help me. And so then it becomes a place where you can have shared decision-making because I feel like, look, you're the expert at this little human being you brought here. I'm not. You're with this person all the time. So you tell me some information, I'll tell you some information, and I'm pretty sure that we can come up with something that might work. And that has been revolutionary. And I think in the word, in thinking about community, some of my, my, so we do something weekly called office hours, but we do spotlights. And what we do in spotlights is that it's kind of the epitome of not having to be the guru, just a contributor. And so I used to think, because that was the medicine in me, that I had to be the one with all the answers. And this is how you should do it. And what I found the power was in the diversity of the perspectives that the women who decided to come into this sacred space held. And in spotlights, you get two minutes, three minutes to talk about what you're struggling with. And then there's four or five minutes for the group to weigh in and say, you know, what about this? Oh, I know this person who does this. Or, and you get the benefit of it. And most times, and after, I will potentially, if, if I need to, say something maybe to add. Oftentimes, I don't have anything to add because the community is that powerful. The people who are affected know what they need, and it's whether or not we're willing to ask them. The patient who comes in knows what she needs, She's asking us to see what is it that we can contribute to, the, to, to helping her find the solution. Mm -hmm. And it gives her agency um, and empowerment that Correct. in the long term is critical to her, to the long term health. Exactly, right. exactly. That's such a paradigm shifting way to think about it though, because so much of medicine is, you know, God in a lab coat, right? And there's, <laughs> yeah. this is where you go for your pill and thank you very much doctor. And, and that's the thing, but this is a foundationally different way of even conceiving of, you know, you even start with conceiving of health differently, right? Like mm -hmm. with all of these other things that are contained within it. And it's a really powerful thing to not only have that, um, like a uh, multiplicity of definitions for health, but like multiplicity of definitions for healer, mm -hmm. right? And who mm -hmm. then contributes to that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's more, it's more yeah. of an ecosystem approach. And exactly. you have the barnacles here and the yep. water and the gulls and the reeds and the clams and they're all working collaboratively Together. and there's no one is, is orchestrating it. Correct, <laughs> exactly. And no one's the leader, right? Is not, no one like right. without me, this could not exist, right? right? So, yeah. yeah, we have a lot to learn. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, one of the things we like to do um, is a segment called Far Field, where yeah. we ask people to think about the things that they're they're learning about, they're interested in, maybe as a, a hobby or, or something you recently got obsessed with and just happened to, you know, gone on a Wikipedia death spiral and know way too much about. <laughs> um, 
but in the spirit of bringing lots of new things to learn into the mix of these conversations to enrich this ecosystem, can you tell us about something that's maybe far afield from what we would uh, expect from the conversation we had so far, but is uh, something that either you're passionate about or super interested in? I'm really, you know, I have two girls and gosh, they're like my role models. And I'm just like, like, cause I'm like, how are you guys this dope at like six and eight? Like, that's not fair. Like, um, and I, and I have been really interested in how do I not mess them up? That's been a really interesting thing for me and how do I potentially not let society mess them up and I think some I think one of the things that I will say that you know I've been totally obsessed with is like what are the different ways that we can start really early with like helping kids like just and girls in particular start to find who they they are and also to live like you know, for themselves unabashedly, right? My, my daughters, we've been on a death spiral in Shark Tank. So let me tell you about, and let me tell you about, and they have a group that they have, it's called Entree Leadership, Entree Leadership Girls Academy, which I put them in, which is basically they meet on Tuesdays and they talk about like, business ideas and what they want to do and like wow. what it takes to like negotiate negotiation was bad because they were they're using that against me <laughs> yeah, but yeah now like they did that um but one of the things that i think in shark tank that was funny because i you know you sit there and they're like learning all these things about equity so i had this um pitch that i was doing for our practice strong children wellness and uh, I told them, everyone be quiet, I'm gonna go downstairs because I have a meeting and it's a pitch. And my six-year-old comes to me and she's like, a pitch? Well, how much are, they how much are you asking for? And I was like, I told her the number and she's like, are, are, are they seeking equity? And I was like, who are? <laughs> she's six, she's six. I was like, um, uh, no, this is not, and she's like, oh, good, okay, okay, good. That's good, because, you know, I don't think you should give up. I was like, who, who am I talking to? So, like, incredible. it's that time together where we're sitting there and they're talking about, yeah, he shouldn't have spent so much on the merchandising or whatever on the, and it's just like, wow, like, I love, because as black little girls, right, I know nothing, I learned nothing about money as I was little, I learned not to like that money was bad and that people who had money, <laughs> they were like inherently not, you know, people who like, it, it had to be either or, right? Mm. You couldn't, couldn't be, you had to be a starving artist, right? Or, There's no healthy relationship no <laughs> with money. <laughs> and, and it's like beautiful to see them like be like, well, this is what I want and I'm going to do this with it. I'm going to help these people with it and I'm also going to have this nice thing and I'm going to be cup and it's just nice to kind of think about ways that we can empower women to feel like they should get what they deserve. I love bringing them into the business and starting to like hear their thoughts and ideas and you know and then they've talked about when I die. I'm like I'm you know I'm not even 40 yet. When I die, you know, I'm taking over and like we're going to do this and we're going to change this and all this stuff. <laughs> I'm 
Okay, can I get a few more years? <laughs> That's incredible. It's almost sort of like an MBA before they get to junior high. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I think those are, that's, it's exciting for me. And I'm just trying to think about ways. Somebody talked about the ways that you can, you know, when, when you see something enriching your child, what are the ways that you can take that and help to enrich other children? And so that's been something that I'm really thinking hard about, like thinking about how the coaching and the things that I do, like how do we get a little earlier and a little earlier and a little earlier, so. Um, last weekend, was the, we just moved into spring officially. And so yeah. in the spirit of that, I'm curious about, um, you know, what, what seeds are you planting? What feels like fertile ground um, in, in the things you're working on? Oh, I mean, what seeds am I not planting? <laughs> Gosh, um, I'm an ideator, so that's problematic many times for my sleep. <laughs> um, but I would say the seed that I'm planting right now is starting to get a little bit better in terms of like, I'm a very high introvert, like high, high, high introvert, and starting to work on how do I find more space to like to connect with others. Um, I have loved the pandemic, unfortunately, <laughs> um, as many introverts have. Same. Yeah. Same. And <laughs> but I do realize the power of that connection, and not even so much for me, but for others, like who have needed that and so I've been you know doing some things like starting to write notes to my friends like write it and then take a picture of it and send it to them as text like in the middle of the day and just like little things to make sure that they remember that I remember them and um, and so I'm starting to do more of that uh, it's a slow process trust me um, but that those are some things that I'm working on wow. I think one of the things that is really important is the the lack of silence so i know we came out here and we were like okay this is good but i'm actually happy that it's not silent zora neale hurston she has this quote that i always talk about and it's like um it's not a funny quote or a happy quote she says like if if you're silent about their about your pain they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it and, and so I just enjoy and revel in noise now. And I'm like saying what I want to say, saying how I want to say it, mm. letting people know like what I want, what I, what I demand, who I am. Mm. Yeah, I feel like that's my anti-racism, honestly. Well, thank you for, for being with us, spending the time with us, inviting us to this place and for you know bringing your heart and your and your your wisdom and your truth and your voice thank you so much for this opportunity i really like enjoy this i i you know i was like we're gonna be outside okay <laughs> and it's absolutely um so different so congratulations on your like being different and going with it and being innovative um that's exciting so thank you
Thanks for listening to Wild Talk. This episode was produced and edited by Matt Dellinger and Jay Erickson. Visit our website, wildtalkpodcast.com, to see photos from each episode, related links, and more information about our guests. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to rate, review, and share with friends. Be well, and we'll see you out there.